the hard shoulder on Newstalk with Nissan subscribe and drive no deposit no compromise no fuss find out more at nissan.ie you're very welcome back to The Hard Shoulder. Kieran Cudahy with you until 7 o'clock. And I am delighted to be joined for the interview, the Thursday interview uh, this week by none other than Michael McDougall. Michael, you're welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Kieran. A lot of different hats I could have uh, ascribed to you uh, uh, by way of introduction. Um, but I suppose that the, the most basic hat we have is that of our name. McDougall or McDowell? Well, it all comes from Northern Ireland where it's pronounced McDole, McDole. And, okay. Uh, that's people have different ways of doing it. It doesn't worry me in the slightest. Does it not? Yeah. When when, when I'm ordering something on the phone, I say McDowell because uh, uh, McDowell. They sort of say, "How do you spell that kind of thing?" And okay. So if you're ordering something, it's it's <laughs> or, or booking a hotel room or yeah, a restaurant, yeah, McDowell. Easier, easier. Yeah. Okay, but yeah. you're you're not you're not bothered by it. No, Some people kind of get very bothered by the name. Get the name right. I suppose it, yeah. they their identity is wrapped up in it. Yeah. yeah. I mean. Uh, when I was uh, in UCD, I was auditor of the Law Society and I was Michael McDowell and there was a Law Society auditor in Trinity with exactly the same name and he was Michael McDowell. So, I mean, there you are. All <laughs> right, okay. So it's not something that, that ever bothered you. Yeah. Um, I mean, if we can rewind back a little bit before we get to UCD yeah. and any societies or anything, actually rewind way back even before yourself and Owen McNeil, um, your, your grandfather, how big a role or how large a figure was he? Did he loom in, in the family lore growing up? Not really uh, all that large. I mean, uh, he died in 1945. I was born in 1951. So, I mean, obviously I didn't know him and uh, his uh, his uh, wife uh, died when I was two. So, I mean, uh, really I, I had no contact with my grandparents at all. <clears throat> so, um, uh, but um, it wasn't... Uh, It'd be wrong to give anybody the impression that our house was kind of in the shadow of Owen McNeil. Mm. It wasn't that wasn't the kind of household we were. And um, um, my mother was conscious of the fact that she was Owen McNeil's youngest daughter. But uh, at that time, um, you know, running up to say the 1966 um, 50th anniversary of 1916, then uh, he began he began to become the subject of discussion both nationally and in our own house at the dinner mm. table kind of thing. And what was the nature of the discussion at your dinner table? Well, um, there was a lot of discussion about, you know, the myth which was put out at that time that 1916 was this wonderful thing and that anybody who did anything to stop it was, you know, a Benedict Arnold kind of <laughs> uh, of the Irish Revolution. And if you actually go back now uh, to um, what Owen McNeill was doing when he... Um, participate in the formation of the Irish Volunteers. He was as committed to an independent Ireland as anybody else was, but uh, he just thought that um, the Pierce Connolly um, uh, rebellion was bound to fail uh, for a whole series of reasons, and he thought that it would be immoral to trigger it if it was bound to fail because a lot of people would be killed. That was his view. Yeah, and and he famously he, he issued that countermanding order, and, and yeah. that was printed in the newspapers, urging volunteers not not to get involved. I mean, was there an element of resentment around the dinner table then that that well, there was a, a, you know a, a, his his memory was being sullied. It wasn't it wasn't so much resentment as an element of frustration. You know, I mean, even today, the great majority of Irish people think that Roger Casement came to Banna Strand in an Amer- in a German submarine um, with a view to participating in the nineteen sixteen rebellion. 
that's wholly untrue. He came to he came on that boat to try and stop it from happening, and his big thing was to get to Owen McNeil as quickly as he could to tell him to stop it that the Germans weren't going to back the revolution and it was going to go wrong. You know. Uh, the, the further you get in history, the further we go from from any event, I suppose, the more black and white it becomes in its retelling. Is that yeah, true of 1916 or have th- we got better I, I don't at think it, so. I think it was really black and white in 1966. Yeah. This was, you know, the 50th anniversary of, of, of the of, of the uh, Easter Rising. Um, I think it's become a good deal more nuanced now. People sort of see that it was a complex um, event. You know, there were all sorts of moving parts in it. Um if the British hadn't, um, you know, if they'd acted differently, the whole thing might have just uh, failed uh, quite peaceably. And mm. if they hadn't executed the leaders uh, and, um, rep- you know, destroyed the centre of Dublin and all the rest of it, maybe it would have been a completely different outcome. But uh, looking at it, you have to look at it from Owen McNeil's point of view. He's in charge of a volunteer organisation. There are people all over Ireland uh, who uh, are to be called out in 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 an in insurrection during the middle of the the world war and i mean there was a moral responsibility on him as he saw it uh, to um to think you know is this is this fair to bring people out and have them killed uh, in a, in a mm-hmm. hopeless cause as he saw it at the time so i mean that was his position but funnily enough you know i mean when um the 1918 general election took place. He was, by that stage, he'd been sentenced to life imprisonment in, in um, Britain and had been released. He uh, headed the poll for the Ard Corla of Sinn Féin uh, um, at their convention in 1917. Uh, he um, participated, and his, his three sons participated in the War of Independence. They were members of the IRA in South Dublin, and he allowed his house to be used as the local arms dump. So, you know... Um, Things turned around pretty fast. Yeah, they did, and and um, I, I suppose the name. And to go back to the name again, you know, I, I wonder to a degree if 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 that name was with you, if you were, you know, M- yes. Michael McNeil, may, maybe would he have loomed a little larger in your life? Um, perhaps so. I mean, uh, my father was a barrister, and he was uh, later an income tax appeals commissioner. And uh, so he didn't take part in politics because he was a public servant. But um, the family was a political family in the sense that we were, uh, all of us, we were sort of on the Fine Gael side of, of things. Mm. And uh, when I went to college, I joined the um, Fine Gael students branch. You were addicted to politics is how someone described you <laughs> at that age. Is that a, a, an accurate description? Well, I, I was, I was um, very interested in it. And um, uh, I did join the Fine Gael Students Branch in UCD and I became its chairman the next year. And then Gareth Fitzgerald was the local TD by this stage. And uh, he um, uh, was very good to the student branches in Trinity and UCD, which were both in his constituency at the time. And he um, he encouraged us to partake in, in politics so that, uh, you know, this is 69 to 72, 73, um, so that by 77, uh, when he became leader of Fine Gael, I became his constituency organiser and later I became its uh, chairman of the, of the constituency party. So you were steeped in Fine Gael. Yeah. How then do we get to the Progressive Democrats? Because the, the, for everybody listening to this under the age of 40, they really won't have any recollection. They're, they won't have their own memories of, of what Ireland was like and what was happening politically and culturally yeah. and economically 
that that led to the formation of the PD. So maybe describe yeah. what, what what the country was like before we talk about the politics. What was the, what was happening in the country? Well, in the, the PDs were founded in 1985, December 1985, and uh, you know people look now at uh, the present economic disruption. But Ireland was in a far, far worse condition then than it is now. You know, there was mass emigration, mass unemployment, huge inflation. You know, it reached 23% at one stage. Um, the state in, in those days, and people forget this now, it owned, um, I think, three banks. It owned all energy, the gas company, you know, uh, the ESB, uh, Borden and Mona, it owned all of that. It owned... Um, Fertilizer factories, it owned shipyards, it owned uh, all means of communication, all radio, all the only television uh, channel that was there at the time. Um, it owned insurance companies, it owned two shipping lines. Um, you know, the Ireland was a very, very different. It, it was almost uh, I wouldn't say Eastern European, but it was it was it was a very, very different uh, society from the uh, society we have now. The state dominated it hugely. Now that's not to say that everything in Ireland at the time was bad. I mean, there were there was there were there were good things happening as well, but um, uh, uh, it was a time of a kind of real kind of despair economically. The mm. the Irish state was not functioning properly. And and was this an argument that was being had, or discussions were being had within Fine Gael about this? And and what they were just falling on deaf ears again. Uh, how, how did we get from there to the PDs? Absolutely. I mean. Um, the uh, there was a, a, a vigorous debate within Fine Gael and myself and Gareth were on opposite ends of it. I mean, he, uh, that isn't to say we were enemies or anything, mm. like that. but um, but we, I mean, he was he was a man for higher taxation. I mean, the the top rate of tax in Ireland got to seventy seven percent at one stage, and the lowest rate of tax was thirty five percent plus um, social insurance. Mm. So I mean, um. Uh, some of us thought, and um, we were probably in a minority at the, at the time within Fine Gael, that uh, as long as tax was so cripplingly high, unemployment, uh, um, and you know uh, payroll taxes were so high, that there was no real chance of um, of uh, developing a dynamic economy, and um, that debate happened within Fine Gael. Uh, um, it was quite vigorous at times, and. Um, uh, when Des O'Malley was uh, expelled from Fianna Fáil, um, I was watching this live on television. There was a, an, a, an RTE crew interviewing him live <coughs> as he was thrown out of Fianna Fáil at Mount Street. And uh, I said to uh, my wife, Neva, I said, you know, if he started a new political party, I'd help him. And I remember she said to me, ah, well, Michael, you know, he wouldn't know that people like you would help him. Uh, so uh, uh, how would how would he know that? Mm. And I said, well, I'll write to him. And she said, well, why don't you write this evening and I'll post it for you? And that's mm-hmm. what she... Uh, she I always, forced you to put I, your money where I your claim, mouth is. I claim I was nagged into politics. <laughs> <laughs> so what was the reception like? Did Desmond, did he write back? Did he telephone you? No, how did he what, reach what, out? what happened curiously was he got a whole pile of these type of letters from me and others urging him to do this and he put them into a file. And... Um, uh, that was in 1984 and um, Mary Harney and himself were then about to be expelled uh, completely um, for uh, uh, supporting the Anglo-Irish Agreement and um, defying the, Fian- the Fianna Fáil whip on this and at that time uh, they must have had a discussion because she went through that file and she said I know him he- he'd be useful and um, um, 
the result was that I ended up being the chairman of the party when it was founded. And was that <laughs> like was it an exciting time? Were you nervous I mean, to 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 kind of jump ship from you know a, a big organisation like Finnegan? You were as we said, you were steeped in it. You yeah. were well got yeah. within Finnegan. Is maybe how how you might describe it. Um, you would have had all of the the, the backing of the, the party machine yeah. to run for office yourself, and to leave that and kind of almost go it alone with what the PDs were yeah. at the time. It, what was it, the well, thinking? it was an exciting it was an exciting prospect, and in early 1985, there was a real chance that uh, that the PDs would have been uh, quite different in the in in their makeup. I mean, there was a real chance that David Andrews and Seamus Brennan would join it, and Michael O'Leary, um, uh, who was by that stage, I think in transit between Labour and FG. So it, there was a real chance that something really big could could, could be about to start. And uh, for various reasons, you can read it all in Stephen Collins' book, uh, <laughs> that didn't happen. And uh, in the end, um, uh, uh, it started off on a, on a much smaller scale. But, you know, strangely enough, there was a huge kind of sense that the political system was uh, in failure at the time. And uh, because of the things I mentioned earlier, and uh, um, one of the things that uh, that uh, amazed us was that when we got going in December 1985, the first opinion poll showed us with 24% support. Can you imagine that? And we were we were just a smallish group of people organising meetings around the country to get people to join. And there were huge crowds turning up at those meetings. And and when it came to, I suppose. <laughs> Settling on a manifesto and what what the party stood for was it all economic? Was it was it the economy and the size as you described it, the size of the the public sector in the state when compared to the private side of the economy? Was it that that unified all of well, you? Well, that was that was a significant part of it, but also there was the kind of the the, the social agenda. I mean, Des O'Malley had been uh, uh, put out of Fianna Fáil for conduct unbecoming, for um, uh, not taking the party line on contraception. Um, you know, so I mean, there was there was a, a social liberal agenda as well. I mean, if you like, um, it was uh, um, not, not uh, it was a kind of a, a liberal economics and liberal politics party. Mm. It was a progressive party. Yeah. And hence, hence, hence the yeah. name, I guess. Nineteen eighty-seven. Then you win your first doll seat. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, when I became the chairman of the party, I hadn't intended, in fact. Um, to uh, to run myself, I, I thought I'd be a good backroom boy. Oh, really? And um, just sorry uh, to cut across you, but I mean, a, a backroom boy just for that election, or or kind of indefinitely? That's how you saw well, yourself in politics. Well, I was I was a young barrister. Uh, I was married. I, um, I I didn't see myself becoming a TD, and I didn't join it. Uh, joined the Progressive Democrats and joined Des O'Malley and Mary Harney and the others um, with a view to becoming a TD. Um, but uh, why my, not? Well, I was mean, it, was there anything about the work of a TD that put you off? Well, um, I, I wasn't. I'll put it this way: I wasn't massively ambitious to become a TD. Okay. That, that was, and uh, my own constituency party had a number of people, uh, and they looked at them. Um, and I won't mention names now, but they eventually decided uh, to ask me to do it. Hmm. And um, uh, eventually, so I said to Neve, I'll, "I'll have a crack at this." I was then thirty-five. And uh, I said, uh, I'll give it 10 years. And, um, you know, that was my plan. That was the plan. <laughs> and I mean, I, <laughs> I hear echoes of this with Leo Varadkar and Owen Murphy and people who say they'll give politics a run, but it's not going to uh, dominate their whole lives. But uh, it didn't work out that way. And I was elected in 87, lost my seat in 89, was re-elected in 90, 
uh, two and uh, so I I, 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 I I was elected three times and lost my seat three times I, I, if you're just tuning into the hard shoulder I mm. should say uh, Michael McDowell I'm going to say yeah, I've decided to going, yeah. Michael McDowell uh, <laughs> is my guest this week for the uh, Thursday interview uh, being elected three times but losing your seat three times uh, uh, which essentially being deselected by the electorate uh, what's your own reflection on that now well um Dublin South East was a very, very volatile constituency always, and it, it has never, ever ret- returned the same slate of TDs mm. um, uh, at an election, six, uh, two successive elections. There's always been a change, <clears throat> and that's a, a worrying thing, I presume, for the present four TDs <laughs> in, in Dublin Bay South. Um, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, it, it is a volatile constituency. And, um, you know, I did pretty well in the first election, but the PDs got into a kind of a, a doldrums um, uh, in 1989 and Charlie Hawhey uh, called a snap election and uh, the vote just went out like mm-hmm. the tide. And then um, uh, the next time around, I did reasonably well, not not spectac- spectacularly, but I, I got elected. And the final time that I got elected, I headed the poll, which came as a big surprise to me because I had, um, I had, uh, in fact, um, been on prime time. Um, they'd done a, a, a program on, 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 on chances in Dublin South, South East, as it was, and they um, produced an opinion poll suggesting that I was at 6 or 7%. Uh, so I thought, well, you know, what can I do? Yeah. And what did you ascribe that to? Um well, I don't know. I mean, uh, well, a, a lot of that they was was you know the uh, one party government, no thanks, yeah. all of that, all of that stuff, um, uh, and uh, there was a, a, a general feeling that um, you know that Fianna Fáil were going to get into government by themselves, and a lot of Fine Gael voters decided, no, I'm going to stop that, and the way to stop that is um, is to vote PD. Did. Did did it did the ego take a bruising on any of those three points when when the I'm, like it must have I mean when you go home that evening and you close the door and you realise that you know people who y- you had asked face to face to vote for you said no they closed the door after you left and said I'm not voting for him well I mean uh, your ego you ha- you have to be uh, fairly tough um, to uh, seek election be elected mm. and lose your seat and go back again so I mean. Um, by that stage, uh, by, the, by the end of it all, uh, I, I would say, uh, yes, it is a bit bruising. But, I mean, uh, on the other hand, I mean, it is the democratic process, you know. And, I mean, it, it, it's not that people are rejecting you. It's that the people are preferring somebody else to you for whatever reason, mm. John Gormley or whoever it is. <clears throat> so, I mean, it's, it's, not a, it's not a case of feeling uh, really rejected. And, 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 and PR is, is that. I mean, it's... it's um, you know, there are uh, four seats to be filled. There are five five candidates looking for it. And it's the person who slips behind uh, a tiny bit uh, that gets knocked out. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, but the other thing is just, you know, why should you feel rejected? I mean, you've done your best. You've asked people to vote for you. And they haven't done insufficient numbers. And, you know, no, I, I get the rationalisation yeah, yeah. for not feeling rejected when you when you explain it that way in a rational way. But then we're not rational creatures. I know. And, well, and I, 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 and, I can tell you. I can tell you to be honest, Kieran. Yeah. Going back after the last time. Well, f- sorry. The other thing I wanted to say to you is, I always did polling during a constituency uh, um, uh, um, um, election, mm. and uh, so I always had a fairly clear view of what was likely to happen, and um, um, there was no doubt. 
that all the opinion polls, both national and party, were showing that I was in trouble on the occasions that I lost. So, I mean, it's it's a matter of um, you, put, you, you just uh, you have to face into it and, and think the likelihood is I'm going to lose. You know, they're mm. going to go, go for Greens or they're going to vote for Fianna Fáil or whatever. And you just have to, yeah, you can see it um, if you do an opinion survey in your constituency. So you know it's coming. It's often yeah, the blow. It's, it's, it's not a terrible shock. You know? <laughs> okay. I mean, I did lose on one occasion by 27 votes. Yeah. That was, that was a, a bit of a, a bruiser, all right. Yeah. Because, because you do think in those terms. Well, it's know, a zero-sum game. Yeah. Well, I mean, when it's that narrow, you sort of say, God, you know, if I'd only done one more night's canvassing or put out one more leaflet or if uh, the following five people who brought their family away on holidays hadn't done it do, or whatever. Do you actually think in <laughs> well, those terms? Well, I mean, you, you, you sort of... You do you do walk it. down the street and eye up that house and think that they, they were a bit of soft... They were a soft yes. I'm not sure if they actually voted well, I mean, me. uh, Well, I mean, you don't, you, you don't resent it that way, but I mean, when you lose by a tiny, tiny handful of votes... You do you, a little you, resent you, you, it. You way. do think, God, if a few more people hadn't gone on holidays, <laughs> I'd have been okay. <laughs> well, I mean, so look, I, I don't kind of dwell on losing the seat three times and winning it because, despite that, I mean, you know, you're Minister for Justice and Atonished uh, and had this, uh, you were Attorney General as well for, for three years, a senator then yeah. in more recent years. So, you know, remarkable success, relatively speaking, you know, um, in politics. Have you. Have you an achievement in politics that stands out above well, anything else? Well, I think the, the Progressive Democrats collectively have a huge achievement. And that is that that economy I was telling you about earlier, you know, with, uh, you know, in crisis, failing people, mass emigration, mass unemployment, uh, sto- total state domination of the, of the, of, of the economy uh, and, uh, you know, a sense of hopelessness. That was reversed. Um, and I mean, other people um, came to our point of view. I mean, about, we weren't the only people who eventually said, let's have competition in broadcasting. Mm. Um, uh, but I remember meeting uh, one particular senior person in RT who said, if there was commercial independent radio in Ireland, it would be the first step on the road to fascism. You know, <laughs> so, I, mean, I remember me, this is over a dinner party, and he was sort of red in the face saying this to me, you know. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean... Uh, it just shows you. Yeah, here we are with our jackboots. Um, <laughs> um, so the success of the... Because I, I, I heard someone remark, I've never, I mean, you would have heard it before, I mean, that the real success, say, of the Green Party would be if we didn't need a Green Party anymore. You know what I mean? That if if if, if their views are entirely co-opted yeah. by mainstream parties. Is it a little like that with the PDs? Well, it was in one sense, but there's an, another sense in which um, uh, the group think of the media um, sort of use the term Thatcherite about us. Mm. I mean, there was nothing Thatcherite about dismantling a dysfunctional state, uh, which which simply wasn't working, where people were emigrating in droves and all the rest of it. And there's nothing. When did that start? Um, it started almost as soon as we. Uh, I mean, the, the, there were a lot of um, you know trade union uh, people who, who who took the view that, for instance, um, uh, having competition and privatising, um, say, f- the phone system. Was uh, was Thatcherite, um, and therefore bad, mm. you know, and um, that anything which upset uh, their particular cosy cartel was bad and Thatcherite, uh, and it was an easy label to to stick to us, and it did to, to some extent uh, stick to us. A lot of people still use it uh, about the PDs, um, but but we weren't Thatcherite. I mean, if you look at what we did, uh, uh, it, it wasn't anything like 
what Margaret Thatcher did in England. Because there, there's this Keynesian revival, if we'll call it that, happening at the moment. And there are people now who argue that the private economy is now too big compared to the state. And and that argument comes from some surprising sectors. I've heard Danny McCoy of IBEC arguing, making the case, for example, that yeah. you know that the, the private sector is now too big. We need a bigger state with more teachers and more guards and more of everything. Well, well I, I've no... I mean, for instance, when I was Minister for Justice, I uh, did uh, a lot to expand on Garda Síochána to try and get it up from twelve to 16,000 uh, members. Uh, so I've I've no problems um, uh, with with uh, a, a strong state doing the job that the state is required to do, um, and Just likewise, not likewise I, I'm I'm not a kind of a, an ideological capitalist. I I, I look at uh, you know um, international capital uh, with a, a good deal of suspicion because I would define myself as a liberal republican, okay, and I'm. I'm I don't believe in the oligarchs or the or the the right of of capital. Um, to be equal to the right of, of a state. And that's one of the reasons I have a, a problem with this um, uh, Canadian trade deal. Uh, you know, that uh, giving companies the right to sue states uh, is something I, would, I, I, I don't approve of. I think, you know, um, um, the market system is a good system, provided that there's a good, liberal, effective government to ensure that uh, there aren't uh, market abuses. And if you were speaking to a group of transition your students today, how would you describe that philosophy, liberal republicanism? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, well, first of all, liberalism, uh, I mean, I'm not, a, I, I, I don't like any form of uh, totalitarian politics, whether it's in China, Russia, or Donald Trump. I just, that uh, it makes me feel sick, to be honest with you. Uh, the fact that uh, it's it's so dominant in the world today, and and I'm f- I feel a bit pessimistic about the way things are going because liberalism is is on the is on the retreat, um, and uh, likewise, I mean, republicanism to me is is not is not it's nothing to do with uh, killing Protestants in Northern Ireland. It is a, a view that um, uh, the the state is um, is the servant of all and the master of none. And, uh, um, and that individuals, it guarantees freedom to individuals as citizens. Um, uh, and um, I don't believe that, uh, you know, a state can uh, survive with massive inequality. And I've never, never, I mean, despite the fact that one person, one time you say that I said that inequality was good, I never said that. Um, as far as I'm concerned, there has to be some measure of dynamism in 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 a, in a, in, a, in, a, in a, any economy, and some people are going to be wealthier than others. Um, and any any system which produced the opposite that everybody had exactly the same would need to be totalitarian. Um, and uh, that's my, my my basic position. But in terms of um, when you're a liberal, you don't have this kind of Marxist view of the of the uh, you know where we're all going to the the communist state. Mm. Um, yeah, you go with the flow to some extent. And um, the term liberal in Ireland, by the way, isn't a great political turn on. If you stood as a liberal, you'd get very few votes because people um, look to England and think that liberal kind of means wishy-washy mm. um, and unconvinced and uncertain and you know um, blown this way and that by events. Um, but I, I, I think, you know, that... Uh, the rights of the individual are important. I do, uh, unlike Maggie Thatcher, I think there is such a thing as society, and a liberal republic is a society which um, which accords individuals a lot of freedoms. And and that brand of republicanism, as you describe it, w- would that be 
um, how would I describe it? W- w- would a Sinn Féin government espouse that type of republicanism? No, well, I, I don't. I don't. I, I really am worried about Sinn Féin, and I'm, I make no secret of that, because they aren't an ordinary political party. I mean, uh, you you interview them, I presume, from time to time on on your program. Yes, and. Um, you will never find any of them disagreeing with the party line at all. And the reason that they don't do that is that they are prohibited from doing that by their party rules. So if, I mean, for instance, there was um, a, 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 a Sinn Féin councillor in, in, in West, uh, West uh, Tyrone, I think it was, Francie Malloy, he, um, on the day that Sinn Féin decided they were going to back six mega councils in Northern Ireland and one in Belfast, he said, I don't agree with this. I want smaller local district councils. Mm. Immediately that day, uh, Jerry Adams suspended him from the party membership. You know? Uh, and that is, that's, that's only one instance. The tap on the shoulder, you're not standing in the next election, comes for various candidates all over the place. And it's, it's happened consistently. Who makes these decisions? The Ard Corla, who dominates the Ard Corla? A small elite, largely based in Belfast. And they are the... the but what's the wrong form- with that? Because Sorry, that, that's the argument they would make. What's wrong with that? That, that they're a 32-county organisation. What's wrong with members of the Ard Corlia coming from Belfast? What's wrong with no, I've not, discipline? I, I, I've, I've, no pro- I've no problem with somebody coming what's from Belfast. What's wrong with having <coughs> r- rules where there are consequences for breaking them? No, um, well, sorry, it's, 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 it's precisely... It, but you know the origin of this is um, what um, Vladimir Lenin called democratic centralism. Once the line is accepted, you must accept it or get out. And you become an enemy of the party if you oppose it in public. Now, that is the exact opposite of Republican, liberal republicanism. And it's a danger. And I mean, I'm, I'm in uh, Leinster House um, uh, very, very frequently. Mm. There isn't such a thing as a meeting of the um, Sinn Féin TDs and senators to decide anything. They get instructions from outside. And they're, they're, for instance, their ministers in, in Northern Ireland when it came to the cash for ash affair, they got direction from a totally unelected person. Their minister did, um, their minister for finance, got it through an assistant from um, uh, Sinn Féin headquarters as to what line he was to take in an issue. Yeah, because, you know, and and you'll understand the workings of political parties more than anyone listening to this and and more than myself, but some people listening will think, is that not how it happens in other parties? Like, are there not unelected... You described yourself as an unelected member of Fine Gael for a long time. You saw yourself as an unelected member of the Progressive Democrats for a time. There's unelected members of of, of parties up and down this country making decisions. Yeah, but I mean, there's there's no problem about an unelected person having a role in determining party policy but uh, it's radically different if um, the elected people uh, have virtually no say about where, where the party is going to go. I mean um, what you're dealing with is a, a, a Sinn Féin spokesman and I see it, it gets up with a supplied script. He, he or she has not um, uh, actually written their own script or really approved its contents. It comes in and is given to them uh, at the same happened in Dublin City Council. Um, there was, uh, you know, um, when they, when some unexpected issue comes, an individual in the gallery gives a signal, yes or no. That's the way they work. You saw that. You saw someone in the... You've seen elected Sinn Féin representatives look up to the gallery and someone... Oh, sorry, I haven't seen that, but I, but I trust people who have seen that, members of Dublin City Council, who wonder what they're going to do. And they see an individual giving them the instruction, you go this way or that way. 
And I, listen, I, it goes without saying, there'll be people listening to this, Sinn Féin supporters and Sinn Féin party members disagreeing. But in terms of your well, fears... Well, they're, 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 welcome, they're welcome to disagree. And if they want to yeah. come, on, come on a, on a programme head-to-head with me, we'll talk about it. But, but, but I mean, what, what they are not free to do is to disagree with each other. And that's, that's very, very unhealthy. Do you really fear, though, what direction the state will go with them in? Because the, 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 the other arguments made from people, look, on, on a, from people maybe who would have misgivings about Sinn Féin, the other arguments they make are, you know, if you look at the experience in the North, they're actually quite practical when it comes to, 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 to making decisions in power. And, and there's also a permanent government that doesn't go anywhere when the, the elected government changes. And really, you know, the scope of Sinn Féin to kind of upend life as we know it is quite limited. Well, I mean, that that view is, uh, I think, um, possibly over-optimistic and naive. You know, I mean, uh, they are seeking office and seeking power, and they intend to use it in whatever way they, they, they want to do. But, I mean, looking at Northern Ireland, for instance, um, mm-hmm. I, I believe that both the DUP and Sinn Féin um, uh, specialise in polarising the situation there. You know, they hate the SDLP and the Alliance Party and the moderate unionists because those people um, who are in the middle ground and trying to reconcile the two communities don't practice the kind of politics they want. So, I mean, you find the DUP behaving in, a, in, in quite a sectarian and, uh, and kind of reactionary way. Mm. But, I mean, what impression does it make on, on your ordinary Protestant uh, to see, uh, um, you know, uh, Sinn Féin elected people um, going to um, to commemorate bombers and 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 and, and uh, people who were convicted of shooting uh, and the like, you know, uh, going to going to cemeteries every every month. We don't do that in the south, uh, you know. I mean, this idea, and the, and the reason that's done is 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 to kind of polarize politics. They don't care what liberal Protestants think of them marching in blackberries uh, here, there, and everywhere uh, to commemorate mm-hmm. people uh, who were who um, uh, were killed in explosions and all the rest of it uh, in the last uh, 20 years or 30 years. They don't, they, they don't care. And my feeling about republicanism, I believe in the Thomas Davis view of republicanism, that the flag actually means something, that the real Irish Republic will, uh, does and uh, involve reconciliation of different strands, different identities, that green and orange must be reconciled. Mm. And, um, you know, you look at the DUP and you look at the tra- traditional unionist voice and you look at you look at what, uh, you know, um, Egypty, uh, Sinn Féin people um, posing with King's Mill loaves on their heads to, uh, to, to, to laugh at a massacre of ordinary working, working men just machine-gunned as, a, as, as an act of retaliation. And uh, you just wonder, you know, are, are they on the same planet? And I come to the very sad conclusion that it suits Sinn Féin and the DUP to polarise politics in Northern Ireland to the maximum extent. Mm. And, 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 to, uh, and, to, and one of the sad facts about Northern Ireland is post the St Andrew's Agreement that um, the way you become First Minister is to get the most votes. And uh, the Nationalists, the way to stop um, uh, the DUP having First Minister is to vote for the biggest um, yeah. Nationalist Party and vice versa. And I mean, that's a polarising thing, which I think is probably a mistake. Yeah. Well, listen, then, before I let you go, I, let me uh, very briefly cast your mind back, because you mentioned Thomas Davison and, and his view of, of what the flag meant. 
did earlier generations in this country, in the first generations post-independence, fail to live up to his view of, of what the flag should mean? Yeah, I mean, you look back to, um, I'm doing a bit of writing at the moment on this subject, mm-hmm. and I'm doing a bit of research. And you look back to um, the uh, early days of, of, of the independent Irish state, and right up to the 1960s and 70s, it, um, the Catholic Church was dominant. And it was, um, although Protestants were not uh, discriminated against, particularly in the South, I mean, uh, it was a largely Catholic state. And, you know, um, if, I mean, to, to give you an example, um, at one stage in 1921, W.T. Cosgrave, who was later to become the um, the president of the Executive Council in the Free State after Collins and Griffith died, um, he actually proposed to de Valera that the new constitution of the New Ireland Republic should have a special chamber in the in, in its parliament, which uh, which in, in which bishops would examine all legislation to see was it conformable with the um, with the with, with the, the the views of the Catholic Church. Mm. So I mean. Um, Genuine republicanism was not as widespread as we are now um, uh, led to believe. The 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 nationalist separatist movement was much more green and Catholic rather than republican uh, in 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 its in its ambitions. And um, the the dominance of the Irish Catholic Church, uh, which is now coming to an end politically, um, uh, the, the, its dominance is. Mm. Um, the that was a, a fact of life, and you know sometimes we are a bit inclined to sort of scoff at Protestants in Northern Ireland saying home rule is Rome rule, but when you look back to what actually happened, I mean I, I was just amused right. the other day. You know Casablanca, the film was banned here because yeah. there was a, a hint that Rick had had uh, a one night stand with um, Ingrid, Berg, Ingrid Bergman uh, in order to get the passports. That was regarded as something which we could not see. Uh, And I mean, we abolished divorce uh, in 1924. And Yeats, you know, protested furiously about that and said, you know, talking for the Protestants in Ireland, he said, we are no petty people. And how can you reconcile this with an ambition for a united Ireland that you you just take away people's rights uh, to civil divorce? But um, we did it. And we, we, um, we enacted a constitution in 1937 which made it impossible for divorce ever to be introduced. Mm. Well, listen, plenty of food for thought. Michael, it's been a pleasure. Okay, thanks indeed, Kieran. Michael McDowell, Independent Senator, former Taunished uh, Adjunct Professor of Law at UCD. Uh, Michael, thanks a million, uh, and we really appreciate uh, all the time you've given us this evening. That's our lot for today's Hard Shoulder. Off the ball, as always, they're up next, and I'll be back tomorrow from four. Have a good one. (laughs) 